Mac Power Users, Episode 76, Workflows with Daniel Jalcut. to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd, alongside with David Sparks. How are you, David? I'm doing very well, thank you. And we're very pleased to have here with us today Daniel Jalcut, who is the founder of Red Sweater Software. How are you, Daniel? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. And did I, I hope I pronounced your name correctly. You got it perfect, as far as Jalcut. I'm concerned, anyway. Oh, good deal. Um, so we wanted to have you on because we haven't had a Mac developer to do a workflow show with us, and you develop some wonderful products for the Mac and have been doing it for quite some time. Yeah, well, it's um, always been a great platform for me as a developer and as a user, so hopefully I've kind of developed uh, enough habits as a user to to be meaningful to, to the audience here. Yeah, you, you know, it's funny. I was We've been talking about getting a developer on the show for like a year, and I was ruminating on it while I was sitting there you know, banging away in Mars edit at a blog post. And I'm thinking, who are we going to get to be a developer on our show? I really can't think of anyone and I'm not sure who to get. And meanwhile, I'm hammering away Mars edit and I look up at the logo. I'm like, Oh, Daniel, right. You know, yeah, so, you <laughs> so I send you an email and like an hour, we've got a deal to get you on. It was great. Yeah. I'm really glad you asked me because I, I had only just gotten turned on to the show pretty recently with that, uh, uh, was it Colleen? Colleen, yeah, Colleen Wainwright uh, show was great, and I was really impressed with the way you guys do the show. So, what a coincidence that you end up asking me to be on. That's great. Well, now you got to go back and listen to the entire back catalog. I think there's about 14 days worth of podcasts. So maybe we'll just stop now, and you can. Okay, I'll be. I'll be right back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and here we um, are, thanks to the miracle <laughs> of podcasting. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So, Daniel, tell us, um, what is your day job? I mean, when people ask you, what is it that you do for a living, what, what do you tell them? Um, I tell people I'm a computer programmer, software uh, developer, and that I work from home, at which point they usually try to tell me they know somebody who could get me a job, or <laughs> they have a friend who's a computer programmer who has too much work. And the thing that's surprising to people, uh, you know, normal, quote-unquote normal people, is that I work from home uh, almost constantly when I'm not taking care of my family and spending time with them. and uh, But I, um, I do all of my business selling software directly online uh, and through, Mac, through Apple's Mac App Store. So um, years ago I did consulting and it was very pertinent uh, to, to, to me when people would say, you know, I know somebody who's looking to hire a Mac developer but now it's been several years that um, every day I get up, I uh, sit down at my computer, and I just start looking at this mountain of uh, various tasks that sit before me, including customer support, uh, you know, marketing, attempts to market my products to the world, the actual software development itself, of course, hacking away in Xcode and other tools, and... Um, Pretty much, I just cycle through that, trying to kind of like let whatever the top priority is percolate to the top and zeroing in on it as much as I can. So, now, so you work for yourself. That's right. You're one. That could be a great boss or a bad boss. Yeah, it's really. Uh, it really. You don't. You don't really know much about your work ethic or your work style until you work for yourself, because 
Uh, it's kind of like unadulterated, uh, you know, unmodified self-behavior that really it really brings to the forefront what your habits are and what your habits are not. Because, you know, most of us who have worked normal jobs or even in school working for, you know, what the teachers want to see, we um, we we don't make all the decisions ourselves. And that's kind of a great thing in many ways because... Uh, it's helpful to have guidance on where to go next. But, of course, everybody who's been in that situation also dreams about being able to call all the shots. And that's what I do, better for better and for worse. I call all the shots, but it does uh, it does take a lot of work to do that. So was, did it take some adjustment when you first started you know, working on your own? Um, you know, it was a pretty gradual process, so I'm not sure I could, I could really place a finger on like a... On like a period of transition. I went from working as a full-time developer at Apple, actually, to um, being a part-time uh, part-time consultant while I was uh, going for a second degree. So I, um, I sort of had this very transitional lifestyle. You know, I went from full-time work, which was an obvious, predictable lifestyle, to sort of, you know, going to classes, trying to program here and there. And then when I graduated uh, again from college, I went... Um, went into the consulting stuff just because I figured, you know, it was it was an opportunity to uh, keep doing what I want to do without necessarily getting locked into a commitment at a job. And um, so just over those over these years, it transitioned from a situation where I was sort of, you know, completely working for other people, i.e. Apple, to partly working for other people, consult, uh, you know, consulting clients to just one day waking up and saying, you know what, I think uh, this, this, this contract job I'm on, I think I'm going to make this the last one. And after this, we'll, you know, sort of just like take a big breath and jump in off the deep end and hope that you stay afloat. And so we'll- it, t- it took some adjusting, but I think it was um, sort of very um, intentional, uh, gradual adjustments. It wasn't like having to kind of scramble to adjust to it. And what was the graduate degree you got? Um, I didn't get a graduate degree, but I got a second BA in music. So I went, the first BA I got was in computer sciences. And the second one, I, you know, I had always kind of regretted not studying more music in school. So about 10 years to the day after my first degree, I got a second BA in music. So it was kind of just a, I, I used to joke about it as my mid twenties crisis because I was at Apple and, um, so lucky to be so fortunate, um, so uh, successful, really. So young, I was you know twenty five years old, had already been working at Apple about six years, um, and the, it's one of those things where you're you're that successful and that successful of a company, and if you're doing well, you can anticipate staying in the company for probably your whole life, assuming the company stays uh, together. And that scared me because I thought you know I didn't really want to go straight from college into a job I'd have for the rest of my life. So I kind of took the uh, the opportunity to jump ship and go to school, kind of get my get my yayas out, so to speak, as far as trying to learn, uh, um, you know, other stuff besides computers. I didn't know you were a musician. So what, what instrument do you play? Uh, well, I didn't, I never said I was a musician. Ah, <laughs> just said okay. That I, I just, just assumed. But, I no, 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 no. You, it, it's, that's just me being uh, appropriately modest because I, I am um, I am interested in music and I do play instruments, but um, 
I um, I play guitar and um, piano, and I play neither one really like great. But um, it's interesting. I actually had to learn the piano for my music degree, and uh, I decided to do that because I could have gone into music school with a with a guitar focus. But since guitar was what I had played since I was thirteen or whatever, it was um, I had too way too many bad habits, you know. So going into music school, uh, they want you to play things the right way. And I decided I better start with an instrument I didn't really play at all. So that's why I ended up learning some piano. Well, that's kind of cool. You know, it's amazing how many people in this Mac community are creative in one way or another, whether it's artists or musicians or something. It's, you know, I think it would be interesting to see a study or some kind of comparison to the general population because just about everybody I know that is passionate about a Mac creates things. Yeah. It's amazing. And the, and the overlap in particular between, um, between, uh, music and computer programmers is huge. When I was in the music school, actually, it was, um, surprising how many other programmers were there. It's, I think it sort of speaks to two things. It speaks to the technicality of music, but also to the creativity of software. They're sort of like, um, sort of like, uh, almost could be a coincidence of history that one's called an art and one is called a science, you know, that could have been reversed if, um, if the right person was in charge of putting the labels on it. This relationship between programmers and artists is not new. You know, we had Rob Cordery at our show at Macworld and we were talking over lunch about this. He's a comedy writer. And right now he's just fascinated with computer programmers because he thinks that the workflow and the ideas behind how you how you create something are very similar between a comedy writer and a programmer. Indeed. Yeah. There's obviously a lot of creativity in the Mac development community and in the Mac community in general. I mean, Macs originally were, were very targeted at the creative group, but if you look specifically at the Mac development community, at, at just the finishing touches on our apps. Now I know, I know Apple makes some of that easy with, with some of their tools, but Comparing side by side a Mac app and a Windows app, just the the polish that is put on a Mac app and the care that is put on a Mac app in in terms of of user interface, I think it really shines through. And you can tell that there are a lot of very creative people, both in the Mac development community and in the Mac community at large. So, so, so Daniel, how come you haven't incorporated some of this passion for music into your programming now? When are you going to release a music app or something? Oh, well, it's a good it's a good question. I've actually um I actually have one music related app which is one of my oldest apps and it's available on my website. It's called Clarion and it's a it's a very simple app for practicing music interval recognition with your ears. Um, oh, really? I, yeah, I'm looking at it now. I didn't even know you had this. Yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of, <clears throat> it's been probably 10 years since I worked on it. Uh, it's I started working on that when I was uh, real, just like, just got into Apple, and I was just working as a QA engineer, and I was excited about becoming a, a programmer there. And I had my sights on the QuickTime group, and um, the stuff that, that I used to build that was all based on something from old Mac OS nine days called QuickTime music architecture. And I thought if I make this QuickTime app, then surely they'll be, you know, unable to resist me when I apply for a job, but sort of turned out I went a different path at Apple and no regrets, but that was the, one of my very earliest Mac programs. So, so when in doubt, just hit the minor seven, right? I see the M seven button there. 
Yeah. <laughs> How does somebody begin to become a, a programmer for either the Mac or for iOS? Obviously, when you started, you, you started for Mac OS. And I know when you were involved with Apple, you worked back on, on System 7. And I think um, through System 9, you were, you, while you were there with Apple, and obviously have continued um, through OS 10. Yeah, but how do you how do you start this process? If somebody says, "Okay, I I want to start developing apps," or I went to school and I have a computer science degree, how does somebody start to become a Mac developer? Well, first of all, I think um, the the whole the, the school aspect and the computer science degree is sort of incidental to whether one becomes a Mac or iOS programmer or not. Um, I certainly learned some things in school, and I have I have some, you know. Um, there were times in my career, for instance, at Apple, where there's uh, sort of a sort of a um, larger, probably than many places, percentage of developers who have no formal training. Uh, I mean, this was more true in the past. I think it's changing over the years, but it was very common when I was there to um, to be the only person in the room, uh, small room, of course, but the, one of the only people maybe with a computer science degree and. Uh, in fact, my first job at Apple, they hired me and the manager jokingly said, uh, we're hiring you in spite of your computer science degree. <laughs> so, um, I think that, uh, it's always been the case in, um, in sort of the creative software development world. Uh, you know, as we were saying the the Mac and, and Apple stuff has always been very creative. Um, so, you know, if you want to get a job, you know, speculation here, but I'm imagining if you want to get a job, um, doing software engineering for, you know, rocket landing robotics or something, then they may be a little stricter about wanting to see a pedigree. But a lot of the stuff that um, we work on on Macs and iOS is so sort of so pragmatic and so, um, so, so much more about being pleasing to the user than um, satisfying sort of, sort of some scientific goal that uh, people come at it from all different angles. And, uh, so I think um, as much as I would encourage people to go to school if they can get something out of that, I think that if somebody hasn't gone to school, um, it's not going to be uh, in any way uh, sort of uh, – it's not going to forbid them the opportunity to pursue a career with with iOS or the Mac. Um, so so um, just how do, how do you get into it? The, uh, the thing is one, one of the other great things about the Mac uh, and – sort of by contagion almost i think ios communities is that it's just so social you know we've we've long time for a long time we've had this sort of sense of a small uh community of developers with a lot of camaraderie a lot of support for even uh, you know folks who are supposed to be your your big competitors you know you see people like the developers of uh uh you know one major ftp client laughing and celebrating at WWDC every year with the developers of another one. And uh, that's the kind of thing where um, that social sense in the developer community makes it pretty easy for somebody who's interested in being a developer to sort of just start, start, uh, you know, nosing in on the, on the, on the social scene, both online, on Twitter, through the blogs, uh, Apple's developer forums, uh, just a variety of ways to sort of start getting your your um, getting your bearings about who is involved in the scene and sort of who you can learn from and and uh, I think if I was getting started today, that's what I would what I would want to get um, started is sort of a, a 
a nudge to go check out this blog, check out that blog, follow this person on Twitter and see where that leads you. Yeah, and you really don't need to go to college and take computer programming to become a really good Mac and iOS programmer. That's right. That's absolutely true. And it's, again, because it's so, um, so much of it is about pragmatic stuff, not scientific, like earth-shattering um, stuff, but about, um, you, know, you know, you don't need to be the world's best computer scientist to know or to get that um, phrasing something a certain way in a dialog box is going to have a more useful effect on the user. Um, it's really a soft, that's what makes it more of a soft art. And the, one of the reasons my secret agenda for this podcast is so I can point people to it in the future, because I get email, I know Katie does too, all the time from people, you know, I'm a moron lawyer, right? So who really cares what I think? But they still write me and say, well, I want to start programming. And sometimes they're kids, sometimes they're 70-year-old retirees, and they just don't really know where to start. And um, my fallback is I always tell people, well, why don't you start with automation, you know, try and figure out some you know, automator and some of that stuff and see how you like that. And if you like that, then you probably need to go and learn about Xcode and Objective-C. But beyond that, I, my advice really is never very good. I mean, I don't, I, like, I know that, you know, the Aaron Hillegas books are good, but I don't really know where to tell people to go to really kind of dig in deep. Yeah, and you know, unfortunately, I don't have a great, like, this is the obvious thing to do answer either. I think that's why my advice is usually much more along the lines of, you know, find something that gets you started down the path and then be aware of the fact that there's a huge community that's willing to engage with you. Um, you know, another great resource is in the past few years is uh, stackoverflow.com. It has, you know, for any sort of uh, specific nuanced area of software development, there's a community of people who are, you know, just collected together there to share questions and answers about vexing problems. And you, you sort of get to know who the people are there who have a real reputation for being smart on one subject or, or whatnot. And then you can, you know, you can sort of try to follow them out of, of that community, follow them over to Twitter, see if they have a blog, see if they, um, if they write a blog that maybe posts, um, open source code, if they have open source code, maybe go look on GitHub and see who else is checking out their open source code. And you see how this sort of social networks everywhere you can you can follow um, you know one one bit of respect. You, you find one bit of respect for one person. You can follow that as kind of like a trust network of who else you should be paying attention to as you try to get immersed in this community. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, well, let's take a quick break and talk about our first sponsor, Daisy Disk. You know, David, I'm loving the Mac App Store and the fact that. A lot of my favorite applications like Daisy Disk are in the Mac App Store because it means I can use them on all of my computers because I am slowly transitioning all of my machines away from traditional hard drives to smaller solid-state drives, and Daisy Disk has been a really big help in that. Yeah, it's even helpful for me with the big disk drives in my house. Our whole family shares an iTunes account. Right. So I've been installing Daisy Disk on my wife and children's computers, and you know they've got like half-built iMovie projects that are like 15 gigabytes and they don't even realize it on their computers. Yeah. And Daisy disk lets you find that stuff. It's a gorgeous interface. Uh, it really makes disk management fun. It goes through and scans your disks and provides it in this format where you can e easily see these concentric circles relating to the size of the data files on your Mac. You just yeah. click on one of them and it tells you what it is. 
you get this beautiful interactive visual map and you can just hover over it and it says, okay, this is in your user's file. This is in your library subfolder. This is in your movie subfolder and this is what it is. And then you can back out from there or you can decide that if this is a project that you don't need, maybe it's an iMovie project that you've long since abandoned, um, right from Daisy Disk, you can collect a whole bunch of files and, and drag them to collect them and then eventually delete them. Yeah, it's really fantastic. It's just $10 in the Mac App Store. It used to be $20 that's on sale, so go get it. Yeah, go get it before the price goes up. Yeah, great app. Um, send them a note if you get it and tell them you heard about it from us. And make sure you get Daisy Disk. I know there's some other apps out there that sound kind of familiar, but it's not the right one. You need Daisy Disk. Yeah, all one word, all together. You can find it in the Mac App Store or you can buy it from their website. You can find a link on our website and uh, make sure you tell them Thank you for their support of Mac Power users. Hey, let's talk a little bit about how you go about your programming and your application development. Sure. So, so what are the apps that you use to get these things up? And maybe I'm jumping ahead of the gun for the listeners who don't know. Daniel's company makes Mars Edit, which is, in my opinion, the premier blogging uh, application for the Mac. Uh, you've got a great crossroad crossword puzzle called black ink and fast scripts, which is, um, it seems like it's almost a nerd thing that people have to be in on the club to know about fast scripts, but it's just an amazing app. Um, yeah. So- fast scripts is a very, um, and it's one of those things where most people look at it and they don't think twice about never thinking about it again, but yeah. then, uh, occasionally people get hooked on it and they sort of they sort of realize like, Oh, I actually, um, you know, and it's, I, I would be the first one to say it's not for everybody, but it's one of those things where, you know, um, people who get it, get into it really, then it becomes one of their things like launch bar, like Quicksilver, whatever, where they're just like, I need this for, for my workflow. It's basically a keyboard shortcut and Apple script execution combined. Is that a good way to summarize that? That is. Yeah. And it's, it started as, um, it started. That was also one of my earliest apps, uh, over ten years old now, I think. And it um, it came about from my frustration with Apple's script menu, uh, you know, the standard script menu in in OS ten. And um, I, I I had it was like it's actually you know pertinent to the whole productivity idea because this was like I said over ten years ago, and I was just getting my feet wet with Apple Script. And I thought, I want to learn how to use AppleScript to make my life easier, to make some of these tasks easier. But then I realized every single way that I had of running these Apple scripts felt like it was slower than just doing the thing that I was trying to, to speed up, you know? So, yeah, yeah. Because um, you, you had to imagine, take your hand off. Yeah, you had to take your hand off the keyboard, get the mouse, go up, drill through a menu bar, right? And right. by the time you were done, it's like, what's the point? Yeah, and so not and not only that, slow. but it's yeah. Go it ahead. also just felt it also just felt really slow when I was running some of these scripts. So um it's not really such a technical uh advantage anymore, but the big thing with fast scripts back in back in the day was um it loaded the script into memory and kept it there so that you could run it again and again without reading it back off the disk. And um these yeah. days disks have gotten so fast and memory management is so good on the Mac, it's not such a technical advantage in that regard. But um, yeah, it was just one of those things where after I got fast scripts, it was, it was a great story for me because I could never sell a copy in my life and it would be fine because um, it changed my whole approach to my work because I was willing to automate things then 
that I had never automated before. I wouldn't bother to automate. So it was kind of a great facilitator for me. Well, maybe let's take a step back from where and, and how you develop apps, but how do you come up with the idea for the applications that you want to develop? Is that how it happens? Is you have a you have a problem that you want to solve and you find a solution and then you say, hey, if I have this problem, maybe maybe other people do too? Is it, how, how do you think the best ideas for apps come about? Yeah, that's... Um what you're describing is the scratch your own itch, uh, you know, approach to software design. Uh, and many, many of us have ended up with products, um, because of that. Um, I'm not sure I would even say necessarily it's the best approach because, uh, from a business point of view, there's probably an argument for saying, you know, don't develop what you want, develop what you know, a huge number of other people want. Um, but there's a, a trade-off there, which is that you, um, you know, this kind of goes back to the well, the 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 um, the fact that working for yourself, you you really are in charge of calling all the shots, and you're also in charge of motivating yourself. So um, I think one of the reasons you see a lot of scratch your own itch type products from self-employed and independent developers is because those are the ones that they have any chance of sticking with and remaining passionate about and remaining, um, you know, getting up every day and actually going through the grind of working on yet another aspect of this, of this application. Um, if you've got a boss who says work on this or you're fired, then, you know, you could work on anything. You could work on, uh, you know, something, something that would be really boring to me, uh, uh, I would, I, I could imagine having a job and getting paid for it, but just never in a million years would I have the follow through to make that into an app on my own. So I think um, on some level, if you're doing stuff on your own, you have to have this passion for the idea. Um, and in most of my software, uh, there is a passion for the idea, and not all of it was even um, invented by me. Like uh, Mars Edit, I actually acquired from. Uh, another developer, Brent Simmons, who was very successful with uh, Net Newswire, uh, the RSS app, and Mars Edit's actually a spinoff of Net Newswire. But I was a, a passionate customer of this app when I got the opportunity to take it over, and um, that was just a sort of lucky circumstance that I was able to take this app that I didn't develop yet. I had a huge amount of passion for, and so I almost had the same effect of being something that I had written from scratch to scratch my own itch. Well, you know that, and I think that's the way a lot of people do it, but, but you're right. Not everything is created that way. Um, have you ever developed an app just because you felt like there was a market need for it as opposed to something that you particularly need? Um, no, you know, I don't think I have, and I'm not opposed to doing that ever. But again, I think, there would be um, a challenge there with that that motivation issue I was alluding to. Yeah. Well, you've been prolific. You have a lot of apps out. For someone that's running your own shop, it's pretty remarkable that you're actively selling five different quality apps for the Mac. And let's get into the workflow part now and talk about how, how do you get this work done? You know, how do you make these apps? Well, the, you know, like most people who write software for the Mac or for iOS, um, I spend the vast majority of my working time in Xcode, which uh, most of you know probably is Apple's uh, standard 
uh, IDE, an integrated development environment, which means that it's uh, a, 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 you know, an environment, an interface for editing source code files um, and all of the materials that go into an app and, um, and also running and testing the app within that environment. So a uh, typical workflow for me with Xcode is to open up one of my projects like Mars Edit in an Xcode project that contains all the source code, graphics, uh, bundled help files, everything that goes into the app, and then look at my bugs list and see where am I going with this? What am I going to work on next? Uh, maybe pick off a bug, maybe pick off a feature and say, okay, I'm going to work on this. And uh, the process is really just like working on a novel or on a, uh, a blog post or anything else you might edit is just write, you know, sort of try it out, look at it, review it, edit it, and start all over again. Uh, and uh, so that so Xcode's really where most of that stuff happens. Um, you know, Xcode has really evolved a lot over the last few years with this new version. Um, what do you think about it? Uh, you know, I'm really I'm warming up to so so for listeners who who don't know about this, there's sort of like a uh, there's sort of like a big chasm between Xcode three and Xcode four. They really redesigned the interface, made it dramatically different in in a way that frankly just really annoyed a bunch of developers. Um, and it's the usual kind of Apple thing where with their developer tools, they, um, they're always trying to innovate and make, they make them newer and better. But often with the big upgrades, they sort of take a huge jackhammer to everything and, and leave a bunch of rubble around and sort of slowly start building things back up from there. And um, I think we're getting to the point now, I think we're at Xcode 4.3. And so there's been a few releases. It's coming together a little bit better for me now. I was pretty critical of it, uh, frankly, at 4.0, 4.1. I felt like it was um, it was just too buggy to impose on developers. I felt like it was almost offensive for Apple to suggest that we should be working in an environment that was that buggy. Um, I know not everybody had the experience of running into the bugs, but for those of us who were were, were you know struggling with it, it felt like you know, pertinent to this discussion, here's this, this productivity tool that's the most important thing in your career and somebody's, you know, screwing around with how it works in a way that's not just against your tastes but actually flawed and, and um, you know, broken. So I've been feeling pretty good about it lately. You know, it's one of those things where I felt like this would happen. The um, There are a lot of good changes they made to Xcode 4 and now that some of the real problems are being addressed, uh, it allows those good changes to to shine a little bit more. It's similar to the reaction to Final Cut. Very much so, yes. And we'll see, you know, Final Cut, I think the same thing is happening where they're slowly putting back some of the... I'm not, I'm not familiar with the app at all, but I've, I've read about it, and they're slowly putting back, you know, bit by bit, some of the stuff people have, have whined most about, right? So... Yeah. I can t- I can tell you as a um, as someone who is not a pro at this stuff, but who's been goofing off with Xcode for years, that the changes at 4.0 actually were easier for me because I I didn't grow up with it the way it was before, right? And and the way they've integrated you know the user interface tools and everything, it's really pretty nice in that respect. It is. But, it's a it's a, it's a wonder of software engineering in its own right. I mean. I, I think the Xcode team at Apple 
deserves a lot of respect for what they've achieved. And I just don't, I, I, I get frustrated as many of us do at nonetheless, how it, it, there tends to be, um, a quality issue with Xcode and, uh, of all the apps that Apple should be exuding quality with, it should, you know, you would think it would be the tool that they are, that they are 100% sure all of their developers are running, right? If you're going to, yeah, exactly. you want to set a model for behavior and, um, and it's not always met, uh, to a high level by Xcode. Is, is Xcode a start to finish solution? If I'm a, a developer, is that it? Is that all that I need to develop, or are there are there apps that you use to support Xcode or to do things on the side with? In, in terms of the actual nuts and but nuts and bolts coding of your job, uh, you absolutely could use Xcode for everything, um, short of you know graphic design uh, that you need to to um, to make an app. Uh, and even if your if your graphic design is limited to standard controls and uh, buttons, etc., then even that you can take care of with Xcode. Um, it's one of those things where, like uh, most crafts, you can have you can sort of never have enough tools for those um, for those special occasions. So, um, you know, there's also different very people use various tools for. Uh, reasons outside the um, the scope of of Xcode and Apple's uh, decision making. So, for example, Xcode has wonderful integrated support for a version control system called Git, which uh, many people have heard of. It's the basis. That's uh, the tool that um, has made GitHub such a popular place for sharing source code. But um, if you happen to use a different uh, version control system, like I use Mercurial, it's uh, there's no support for that in Xcode, so you end up doing all your source code management outside of the Xcode IDE. So it sort of depends what you know. If you if you're happy with everything that Xcode's doing for you, then you can most certainly just use it. And the wonderful thing is it's free. You know, uh, Xcode's free from Apple. You have to pay a ninety nine dollars a year if you want to sell stuff on Apple's app stores. But aside from that, it's a it's like never been more affordable to get involved with and start doing professional level work on a major platform. And I understand you're also a BB edit fan. Uh, yeah, I've, I've been using BB edit forever and it's sort of the, it's the text editor that you keep using while the whole, like, uh, while the whole universe of IDEs around you, you know, continues to migrate and transform. It's, you know, I think I've been using BB edit since back when I was using, uh, an IDE on, mac os 9 called mpw which was you know old 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 thing from apple uh and then you know i switched to code warrior along with a lot of people um towards you know the late 90s and um over the years uh the the sort of de facto ides have shifted but bb edit is still just a great general purpose text editor with a lot of uh customizability a lot of good support for things like multi-file search and replace, uh, comparing files. I use it for a bunch of stuff. Uh, you know, getting back to your point about Xcode, I actually don't use. I, I think there's very little in BB Edit that I couldn't do in Xcode, in Xcode's own built-in editors. But I just like the way that BB Edit does some of that stuff better. So, um, I also use BB Edit because it has uh, 
you know, it has support for opening up stuff off of a off of a web server and editing it and saving it right back to the server. So I use I use PB Edit for a lot of my web stuff and Xcode more for the source code for my apps. Yeah, that that was the question I was going to ask. So do you use BB Edit to write Xcode? I'm sorry, I guess Xcode isn't the right term. Do you use it to write Objective C for your apps, or do you do that in Xcode? I do all of my Objective C in Xcode, and um, there's a really strong incentive to do that because um, you know some of the some of the improvements I was alluding to in Xcode four have to do with um, ways that the editor can assist you in writing the code itself. So um, it's not that this stuff would be impossible to do for like BB edit to have a plugin or something to make this easier or to um, sort of approach this in the same way. But Apple's, you know, Xcode environment has a unique ability to sort of combine all of Apple's tools for developing stuff in a way that uh, can, for example, just way more intelligently predict what I'm trying to do. So um, just imagine if you're writing a book and you, you write the quick brown fox and uh, while you're while you're writing, the editor lights up and says, you know, pre pre finishes jumped over the lazy dog for you, and all you have to do is hit return to confirm that that's what you were trying to write. And that's the kind of stuff that um, Xcode's integrated editor is able to do because it's um it's using all of the development tools to analyze your source code while you're writing it, and essentially sort of like pre compiling the source code to get a sense for what your final product is going to be. So it's it's basically like this hyper-aware editor um, that knows about your source code, which is a really yeah. unique opportunity to make things easier for developers. And for beginners, frankly, as you start writing this stuff, because it, it helps, it's assistive typing, really, in a lot of ways. Right, so you've experienced that in your in your experiments. Yeah. Like, yeah. And it's just it's it's brilliant when I mean and then if you get to the point where you rely on these these completions uh, and you know assistances it's just it blows your mind to think about doing it any other way so um, I think that you know as I said there's nothing to keep BB Edit from doing some of this if they if you know and and it does do some of this um, but the the um, the real advantage with Xcode is Apple's just incented to um, to keep improving that stuff because that's you know the more they can make uh developing for the mac and developing for ios irresistible to developers the more that grows the platform and makes the platform more irresistible to consumers so how do you how did you choose mercurial over git oh boy well i you know I am a, a opinionated person like so many Mac users, right? So I always put it this way. I picked Mercurial over Git for the same reason most of us picked Mac over PC because I care about usability. I think um, the sort of refined um, edges of a product are more important than the crude raw power of the product. So... Um, in a nutshell, I think it's fairly safe to say that people pick Git because it's extremely powerful, because it's extremely popular, and because um, there's a way to do whatever you want to do. And if you think about that, that's exactly the reasons that people pick Microsoft Windows, right? It's like 
It's not because it's easy to use. It's not because it's accessible and anybody can get started with it. It's, um, and that's what, that's what I think Mercurial is by no means a simple system, but it's, it makes so much more of an effort to be, um, accessible to people who don't want to get a PhD in source control technologies. Okay. Well, that's right. But now is the, is the added friction of not having to integrate with Xcode, is it holding you back at all or are you okay with that? You know, I think I'm okay with that. I would, I would certainly like to have the opportunity to integrate Mercurial with, uh, with Xcode, but this is one of those things where I have never used an IDE where I was happy with the, the, um, the integration. So yeah. I can't be sure even if they did support Mercurial, if I would use it. Um, and I think it sort of comes down to, you know, a lot of people really love the integration because, you know, um, you know, for, for people who don't know what source control is, it's basically just versioning for your files. And it's like time, having time machine on for your source, con- source code to a certain extent. Um, and so what's nice about the integration in the IDE is um, you can use menu commands and stuff to say, I want to compare all my changes from this um, edit with my last changes. Um, and that's a lot more user-friendly than having to go to the command line and say, type in commands to uh, the terminal for looking at the changes. But it's sort of one of those things where if you're like me and you've been using command line tools to do, um, to do this version control stuff for my whole career, it's like one of those things where you, eh, it, it probably would be easier and I probably could get used to um, a really nicely done integrated version. But since I haven't, and since there hasn't been an opportunity for that, um, I just sort of keep sticking with what I know. So really, it would be it would slow you down to try and switch over at this point. Um, I think so. Uh, you know, it, I have some very specific habits in place. You know, uh, going back to like fast scripts, for in, for instance, I have a uh, script that's hooked up to a keyboard shortcut in Xcode that whatever I'm looking at in Xcode. I hit a keyboard shortcut and it opens up a terminal window with, you know, changed to that path. So, um, these little things, I sort of have my own idiosyncratic things that, um, probably wouldn't be the best solution for other people, but nonetheless keep me from, uh, going into the mainstream solution sometimes. So I'm going to talk a little bit about actual, after you've produced the app, how you market it and sell it. But, before we get there, is there anything that we've we've left off from the actual production end? Ah, uh, you know, I I think the question is: Is there anything um, so important to mention that I will just I will just regret having not mentioned it? Uh, there's so much that goes okay. into the production that we could just zero in on every single little facet of it and have a great time talking about it. But I, it also gets really nerdy really quick. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, um, you know, I think that's probably a good enough for now. There's some interesting stuff that I, I um, that uh, there's, there's stuff like continuous integration where you have um, a website constantly downloading and b- rebuilding your app for you to um, automatically determine whether there's been any bugs introduced. I think that's a pretty interesting technology that um, has become like a... The- Explain that really quick, because I've never heard of that. 
Okay, yeah. So here I said, let's not go into it, but I just, I guess I did, I guess I did just have to mention it. Um, It's okay to get nerdy on our show. That's actually kind of expected. Okay. All right. Well, and this is actually good because for any developers who are listening, I think you could really have your minds blown by this. um, If you get, if you take the trouble to set it up and get involved with um, this style of development, it's especially important for a small team. And even, you know, most of all important for a one person team, I think. And, and, and that's sort of backwards from how most people view it, I think, because um, what I'm talking about is a software that facilitates something called continuous integration. And what that means is uh, traditionally what happens when you write software, um, you make a change and you fix something. And... Um, only sometime down the road does somebody notice that when you made that change and fixed something, the separate part of the product that you weren't actually running at the time uh, got broken, right? And then you go back and you scratch your head and you say, well, how did this get broken? And you find out that, oh, yeah, three weeks ago when Daniel was working on the blog editor's rich text editor, he did something stupid and it broke the, um, you know, the Flickr browser, and nobody knew. Um, so that's just sort of a high level idea of, of the problem. And then what helps as a sort of solution is this concept of continuous integration, which is a, any process that's set up to automatically notice when you've made a change to the app and then go through some series of steps to validate that nothing bad has happened as a, as a result of that. So at, a, at the very highest level, um, what it can do is it can just va- validate and verify that whatever change you just made to the app doesn't um, cause the app to no longer even be able to be compiled. Um, so you can just think of, uh, and, and at, the, at the other end of it, you can have complex tests that you write called unit tests that um, go into every nuanced behavior of your app and and run the code of your app through these particular um through these hoops really to, to test and confirm that the thing that you think is going to happen actually still happens with the code. So um, like a really well uh, unit tested product, you could find out within 10 seconds of committing a change to the software that um, actually this broke something over here. So, uh, so going to your example, if you had made changes to RTF, and sent it through this test, it would check to see that it can open a file, save a file, it can do a Flickr integration, and or whatever other pieces right. of your app you wanted to test. Right, and and actually, to be honest with you, my app is not so well tested that that particular scenario is necessarily going to be caught, but it gives me a framework then for whenever I add new tests, whenever I decide that there are new um things that should be confirmed all the time that I have this framework in place. It's basically a robot that is programmed to always be hyper vigilant about my source code for all of my apps. And, um, is another really good, um, way to visualize how this helps is, you know, I have Mars edits, one app, fast scripts, another app, uh, flex time. They all use code that's shared from the same, um, you know, code base. So some of the basic stuff that, um, that my apps do like, um, uh, certain types of windows that they all display. Uh, let's say the about box, for example, they all share similar code to do the about box. 
And um, so one of the things my continuous integration server is set up to do is whenever I change the about box code, that means go download and build all of the apps and make sure they just still build even. And then they go run through whatever tests are set up for those. So it's just um, a way to be hypervigilant that technology affords us that we would never be willing to do on our own. You know, we would never say, okay, here's the rule, David. You can make changes to the source space, but every time you make a change, you need to go download all the source code for all the apps, build them all, make sure they still run, and make sure all their tests pass, and then you can go on to working on the next thing. And now you pull that off with Jenkins? Is that the... Yeah, Jenkins is the is the service, the software I use. It's actually self-hosted. I host it on a server in my house. So I actually have like a dedicated... Uh, server that's my continuous integration server it's also my home media center we watch dvds on it we host all of our music on it and um it's one of my test machines so we have this one machine this mac mini in the living room that does all these things okay well that makes sense i didn't know that was even possible yeah it's well it's great i mean it's it's funny too it's jenkins it's you know it's not like it's not the most complicated thing in the world to achieve, but it's just a complicated enough that I would never want to write all of the scripts and uh, you know the triggers to download my source code and all this junk. Uh, so it's just nice that there's something out there. Jenkins in particular is very popular um, and, and well-tested for not just the Mac. I mean, people use it on... Uh, it's actually a Java app, and people use it, at, I think, just about on every platform to achieve different different versions of this kind of um, integration. You know, another app we talked about on the phone that I just discovered this year at Macworld, in fact, Mr. Mann turned me onto this, is RooSwitch. And I understand you use that one as well. Oh, yeah. I'm a, I'm a huge RooSwitch nerd. I w- I'm glad you mentioned it because I was going to mention it if you didn't because this is one of those things um, that's especially useful for developers, but it's easy to imagine ways that it is useful for power users as well. Um, and the the basic premise of Rue Switch is, um, I think their tagline is shuffle your settings around. And what it is, is it's um, an automated way of um, controlling for any apps on your system, um, different profiles for using those apps. So what it does behind the scenes is it copies, it makes a copy, a backup copy of the preference files and all the support files for any app on your system and then um, starts you off as if you're a totally new user with that app and then you can make another profile. You could have three different profiles, say, for iTunes and if you switched between them, it would be as if um, you were completely different users. Uh, So this is really useful for testing because I can make a profile in in MarsEdit, say, that says, okay, I want to test... Mars edit as if I'm this user from uh, Saudi Arabia who sent me their preferences files and everything's set up with different, you know, um, formatting preferences and all this and that. And then I can, instead of having to, you know, overwrite my own personal preferences, I just use RooSwitch to make a new profile, drop in all their preferences. I can mess around with it willy nilly and know that I can always restore my original profile. Um, yeah. It's also also really handy. You can imagine this this um, iTunes scenario. What if um, you know you've got a job where you have to be 
logged in as the um, the dedicated iTunes you know store administrator or something. You know, you, you can only run iTunes software that was purchased on your work account or something. And then you've got this other life where you you know bought all this software through your private Apple ID. You could use something like Rootswitch to just uh, click of a button, switch between those two personalities without uh, without having to. Um, you know, have the, the alternative generally would be to actually have a completely separate user account on your Mac, and Rootswitch lets you just um, do it on a on an app by app basis. Yeah, I'm using it when I speak, when I talk about apps, and I don't want to get up and put my OmniFocus database in front of a crowd full of people. I've got a separate, you know, kind of dummy account. Or oh yeah, or that's any, perfect. Or or any app I'm working. So if you're listening to the show and like you're big in your local user group, this is a perfect solution to avoid putting your personal data up on a screen. And you can have different data sets. I mean, it's not just the preferences; it's the actual data for the app. And uh, right, yeah, yeah. So you could even great, have right? uh, you could even have different profiles for the same talk for different audiences, like like if whatever's yeah. more pertinent to them. Yeah, it, it's really an amazing app. I. Like I said, I just discovered it this year, and I'm I'm already using it all the time. I know that um, our friends at the Omni Group they use it like extensively as well when they're troubleshooting for their customers. I think it's one of those apps that's it's very popular among developers. So um, it's like uh, probably not as many you know non developers know about it as should know about it, and will we'll help to change that. I hope, but um, it's so obvious to developers what its value is that a bunch of us are just like, Oh yeah, we need to re-switch that. Yeah. All right, let's take a break and talk about one password. So, you know, David, I think it was last week we got the listener testimonial from Ralph, I think, where he was telling us about how um, one password saved him in a pinch when he left his passport in either a hotel room or a condo or something like that and ended up driving 800 miles in the wrong direction before he realized his mistake. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I took that to heart. So I have started scanning, you know, my passport and some other sense important information into one password. But more than that, I realized that I can get rid of a lot of the junk in my wallet that I don't use very frequently and scan it into one password. And if there's ever an issue, I've got it on me. So I've gone through, I've got my passport. Um, I actually scanned in um, my mother's passport because we're getting ready to take a trip together. So I wanted to make sure that I had her information as well. Uh, and I just kind of went through my my wallet and scanned some of that stuff, you know, that I, I thought that I might need. And if for any reason I would were to lose it, it would be a lot easier to recreate if I actually had scans of the cards and information, because if I should lose my wallet somewhere, all I have to do is open up one password and I've got copies of the front and the back of the cards. I know who to call. I know how to cancel them. And I've got all my information until the replacement cards come. So now are you doing that? You're doing a scanned image of, for instance, your credit card. Right. And you're storing that in the notes section of one password. Nope, you can actually do it. In 1Password, they have a wallet section. So you can put in all of your credit card information into the wallet section of 1Password so that you can use it when you autofill a website. That's a great feature. It's a little too great because it makes it really easy to fill in your credit card information online and buy things without having to think about it sometimes. Yeah, that's 1Password 101 there. You that's 1Password. Yeah, but yeah. you can also attach an image file to that as well if you want to. So you can either attach the image file into the wallet 
or you can add it in separately. So just about any field in 1Password or any item that you can create in 1Password, you can also attach a secure image. So wait, you're putting a scanned image of your credit card in the credit card entry of the wallet. Why not? No way. I didn't even think of that. Yep. You're so smart. And I think the back is probably more important than the front because that's what's got all the customer service contact information, but you can do whatever. So you did everything in your wallet that way? Pretty much. I didn't think of that. I've got my, you know, frequent flyer stuff. I've got my credit cards. I've got my driver's license. Now, I don't know if I get pulled over if the cop's going to take my iPhone. Yeah. You know, officer. <laughs> but, you know, when you lose your wallet, that's great. So you can just get on there and put the phones. I put the phone numbers on in 1Password because it's got a field for that. So right. the, the, the phone number you call if it gets lost. But having a picture of it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That's a good one, Katie. All right. Well, I'm going to do that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you've got it on your iPhone and it's secure and it's it's more secure than just, you know, typing in your iPhone password. You then have to type in your 1Password you know, usually the pin password and then your master one password password. So even if your iPhone is compromised, you still got that extra level of security. So yeah. yeah, years ago I did that with like library cards and stuff and I saved them as an iPhoto event or something. So it would scan, uh, go over to my iPhone, but I took it off cause I was just too nervous about it. Having that stuff on there, your well, library not my card? library card, but, but my, um, you know, my credit cards and things like that. So, yes. but this makes a lot more sense just so it's behind the one password password. Right. So anyway, all right. you can go pick up a copy of 1Password. It's $49.99 in the Mac App Store. If you need a copy for Windows 2 or you're sliding between the Mac and the Windows systems, you can buy a bundle for $69.99 off of their website that will get you licenses for both. But don't forget, if you use the link on our website, you can get a 20% discount off of anything purchased through the 1Password website. If you want to scan it and use it as your digital wallet, you are going to need licenses for their iOS apps, and you can get a pro license for $14.99. That will cover both an uh, iPhone and an iPad, or you can get the iOS regular license, which will be either an iPhone or an iPad for $9.99. So 1Password is everywhere. You can find more information over at onepassword.com, and thanks to them for their longtime support of Mac Power users. So... Once you have the software created, you've got to get it out and sell it to the world so that you can create more software for all of us. How does that process work, and how has that process changed or not changed for you with the Mac App Store? Well, the, the, it's the biggest challenge of being a software developer um, is getting the word out, and, and that comes as a huge surprise, a huge depressing surprise to many people who um, decide they're going to you know, take a crack at being an independent software developer. Um, sometimes, you know, in the, in the worst cases, people make the mistake of, say, quitting their jobs, um, expecting that on their three months' worth of savings, they're going to go from zero to you know, full-time in- income amount of success, and that just is almost guaranteed not to happen. So um, I wish I could put it into... Um, I wish I could make a recipe or a formula for how to do it. I've obviously had some degree of success. Um, and I know some of the things I've done that have helped a lot, but a lot of it has just been, you know, I, I, I joke about this with, with other developers, especially younger developers who are getting started. Um, a lot of it has been just sticking around, you know, like you just stick around year after year. And, um, eventually if you don't give up, you're going to be the one that's been around, you know, <laughs> one of the ones that's been around the longest and 
it just sort of gradually your, your reputation accumulates your exposure accumulates um users are of of great software on the mac and on on iphone are um are great word of mouth carriers you know especially uh since twitter came out this is just the world is uh getting more um you know, it's one of those ironies where a lot of us are sitting at home, spending more time hunched over our computers, but we're getting more social in other ways on a grander scale. So there's more communication going on. Um, so it's the am- main thing—it's amazing. I- it's amazing about life, though, how much of it is just just not quitting, right? <laughs> totally. Yeah. Like, I mean, uh, you, you never know. Eventually, either. you get it right. That's right, and you never know when uh, somebody's going to say. You know that thing you've been working on for five years and nobody has pretended to care about it or even think it was worthwhile? I think, you know, that's the greatest thing ever. And I'm going to talk about it on the Mac Power Users podcast, you know, and and you just never know when uh, you're going to get your break, so to speak. So yeah. um, I think I think that's the biggest challenge is people. And I, 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 I really empathize with developers who um have a simplified vision of how things are going to play out. Um, the things I sometimes warn people off of the indie software life and, and things that should warn you off are, um, if you're sort of like have a, um, uh, paralyzed, if you're paralyzed by the idea of socializing, you know, um, you probably can't run your own business. You probably can't con- communicate what you're doing to the world, uh, effectively. Um, if you feel like you want to live a, live a very private life, um, you know, sure, you can keep your, your private life private. But I think um, a real important part of getting your marketing out there is living, at least having some persona, some aspect of you that lives publicly, you know. Um, and so things like being on Twitter really help with that. Uh, I think customers really enjoy, for example, finding out that um, when they uh, – when they make a comment about Mars edit, I usually respond to that comment, if, whether it's a negative or a positive comment. And, um, well, it's not only that, Daniel, you, you're really are a voice in the Mac community. I mean, your, your blog is, is great. You just did a post recently about sandboxing, which I thought really nailed it. And you, you participate in the dialogue. And I think that's something that, that other developers could learn from. You know, that's my main, and that's my main bit of advice is for everybody, whether they're, you know, this comes back around to what we were talking about at the start of the podcast. Uh, the, the advice for learning how to program the Mac or the iOS devices, the, it's the same advice for, for learning how to, um, be a successful, you know, self marketer, self sales person, it really is just getting involved and actually keeping your ears open as you're getting involved with the social environment we're in, you know? Um, and, uh, just, just, uh, plugging away at it. And the other thing is it takes a huge, you have to have a huge amount of, um, resilience because as you, as you all know, uh, there are mean people on the internet and they want to be mean to you no. <laughs> and they will be mean to you. And you have to be able to, um, sort of put that aside, put that in a box, sort of say, you know what, this is, uh, this is like a movie I'm watching about a mean person who's mean to a software developer. And 
I can, I can just skip past this part and go back on to the, the rest of the movie where everyone's just saying how great everything is. Um, you want to keep an open mind to what the, what the issues are if there's something real there, but you really have to uh, develop a thick skin for criticism to, to do this kind of work. I think I sort of went off a, off ta- off a tangent there, but um, you said something about how, how have things changed getting apps out there since the App Store came out. Um, right. I think if Apple had their way, developers wouldn't have their own websites where they sell their apps. Everything would just come through the Mac App Store. But as as we as longtime app u- uh, Mac app users know, that's that's simply not possible or plausible or feasible under the the current restrictions. But I'm wondering, have you seen the App Store increase visibility, increase sales, make it easier for you to reach yeah. out to a certain population of the Mac community and things like that? Yeah, I'm I'm in a I'm in an interesting spot that I think I share with many people, which is um, being simultaneously sort of terrified by the the App Store and what it means to cede so much control to Apple, and nonetheless having this um, undeniable growth in sales and exposure. Um, there was a fear when the App Store came out that. Uh, you know, so get, just just to, as a uh, as to, to preface this with um, how we used to sell software and how some of us, many of us, still do, is um, you know, a customer downloads the app from your website, they decide they like it, and they go to your site and um, use a, a, a digital store to enter a credit card and download a license to the app. And as everybody now knows, the app store is a related but somewhat different model where you pay directly to Apple for whatever software you want. Um, and uh, a lot of us were worried that um, what would happen with the App Store is everybody who used to come to our website would go to App Store and buy the software. So we'd be making the same number of sales, but we'd just be getting 70% of the money instead of 100% of the money. And fortunately, for me at least, that hasn't played out that way. Uh, as far as I can tell, you know, uh, a great number of the App Store sales are new sales that Apple has brought to me from, you know, their massive landmark uh, of the App Store. So I have to assume there are people out there who are typing into uh, the App Store, you know, things like blogging and finding Mars Edit and saying, okay, I'll try this, um, which is That's from a marketing point of view. I'm sorry, that, that is absolutely true because I'm looking at the max of family members and friends who never would never know that Red Sweater exists and would never go and give you their credit card information under any circumstances, but they have Mars Edit on their Mac. Oh, hallelujah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I don't. I think that that's the big change is people, uh, the fear and, you know, the ability, the fear of buying software from somebody on the internet really was stopping a lot of people from doing it. And to a certain extent, finding it in the app store gives it that blessing. Right. And this actually comes, um, it it brings the, uh, discussion a little bit back around to the sandboxing thing because part of, um, this is another, this is another area where I can have sort of conflicted feelings because sandboxing threatens to change the behavior of much software in the app store, sometimes in minimal ways, sometimes in extreme ways. 
But, uh, and that's, you know, obviously sort of scary to a bunch of us developers who fear that our apps might become less functional and customers will end up with less uh, of an app than they had paid for. Can, can you um, just go back and explain what sandboxing is a little bit for people who aren't familiar? Just sure, briefly. yeah. Yeah, sure. So, so um, the, the state of computer software from the beginning of time to now has essentially been that software you download and run on your Mac or on whatever computer has relatively free reign to do what it wants with your computer. And, um, you know, there's some limits in Mac OS, for example, the software can't, um, write over the system files without asking for an administrator password, but it can still do it if it wants to, uh, ask for the password. Um, and it can do things now without, um, you know, if you download an app from, uh, a website, it can go in and reorganize your home directory for you if if that's what the purpose of the app is. Now, obviously, this leads to um, very many really useful and cool tools. You know, one one jumps to mind. Uh, speaking of organizing, is Hazel, which you you guys probably have heard about. It's a uh, it, we actually did a show on. Oh, Hazel. okay, great. So that's a perfect yep. example because it's the most useful app in the world that is 100% not compatible with the sandbox. And the reason is, (laughs) yeah. So the reason is uh, getting back to what the sandbox is, the sandbox takes this idea that software has free reign uh, over your data and starts with the exact opposite premise that the application can do nothing with your data. And then every privilege that it gets to work with your data or to um, access your addresses in your address book or to look at your movies or your pictures um, or to write even a disk, a file to the disk, everything has to be um, sort of authorized. Um, and the apps themselves have to request um, certain privileges from the system. And uh, basically, the uh, what's coming down in the san- in the sandboxing on the Mac App Store um, sort of situation is Apple has said that as of June first, any software that's submitted to the App Store after that date must be sandboxed, and so that means literally that uh, apps have to succumb to this new system of security and control over what they can do on a Mac which um, has these devastating effects for apps like Hazel, which um, I think he must have anticipated this because he never put Hazel in the Mac App Store, probably knowing that it was going to, if something like this happened, how devastating it would be. Um, and there's, there's two sides of this. So the idea is if you download an app that is going to do something like check for duplicate file names or rename files, uh, that's actually a bad example. If you have an app that's going to help you fix a picture, it should not have access to your address book. And right. maybe bad bad guys could sell you an app that you think is just fixing pictures, but in reality is uploading a copy of your address book, and then they're using that for bad reasons. And the, the whole idea of sandboxing is saying, no, you've got an app that fixes pictures. You don't need to see the address book, and in fact, you can't. So I can understand the the basis of it. But the trouble is, I guess I have a couple questions. Number one is, um, is this really a problem or is this a hypothetical problem? And 
you know, we're throwing, it feels to me like it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater because apps like Hazel and, um, you know, other apps that use things that go across your system are by definition probably not going to pass the sandbox rule. Yeah, I mean, it's um, a lot of people look at it with that default attitude of this is to protect me from malicious software. Um, more realistically, I mean, most malicious software out there is not going to, you know, you, you had the example, this is some, let's say some app that's manipulating your photos um, and it also does something nasty like, you know, uh, delete your files. The real bad stuff out there isn't even going to bother doing the useful thing, right? So it's not going to be um, a photo editing app that also deletes all your files. It's just going to be a, yeah. a, an app that deletes all your files and gets away with it. Um, so I think what's overlooked a lot in the sandboxing um, analysis is that the sandboxing, its primary purpose is to um, is to protect developers from their own mistakes. So it's to protect a... a, 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 a you know, a good developer who makes a good photo editing app who accidentally writes a bug that deletes all your files, right? That's a really good example of something that can be prevented by the sandbox. Um, the other thing is, the other angle is, um, the idea of sandboxing apps is to make the apps themselves less, uh, exploitable by other software. So, um, for example, um, if Photoshop is not sandboxed, then, um, you know, it can write to any file in your home directory. Now, what if you install a Photoshop plugin that is either malicious or has a bug in it itself that causes all of your files to be deleted? Um, the idea with sandboxing is in part to make the apps themselves um, less exploitable. So, so somebody couldn't give you a nasty plugin for Photoshop that is actually a you know, a spam bot or something running it as dis- okay. in disguise. Makes sense. And then, and then now Apple's come out with some new rules with mountain line. I guess we probably shouldn't talk about those because that's under the, uh, developer agreement at this point, but they're also publicly stating at least they have some other ideas for security and app signing and uh, app store sales that we're going to have this summer. One of the things that I think is complicated this this whole sandbox situation, and this this could be a whole other show for a whole other day, um, is, is that Apple has been somewhat unclear, at least to the general public, as to exactly what's going to happen and when, because perhaps they've been a little wishy-washy, and this this feels like a poorly implemented policy because the the concept of sandboxing was first introduced at WWDC, I, I believe it was last year, and then we had the Mac App Store. And developers could put their apps in the App Store even if they weren't sandboxed, but they would have to be sandboxed by a certain deadline. And then that deadline kept getting pushed back and back and back and back. And and now we're finding out, well, if you're there, you can stay, but you can't have a major update. You can just have a you know a bug fix update or a minor update, but, but no major new features. So you get a little penalty if you're not sandboxed. And going back to the the basic consumer that David was talking about a few minutes ago, the person who maybe never would have found Red Sweater or any of these other third-party developers that we love and who produce great software through avenues other than the App Store are are finding themselves with apps that are either on a different development um, uh, uh, schedule or, or can't progress any further in their development 
because of the sandboxing guidelines, and now they're saying, well, wait a minute, I, I bought this app from the App Store because I, I trusted Apple and I thought, and now I can't get updates. And that doesn't seem fair either. So it just seems like this was a, a very poorly implemented process from the beginning. Yeah, I really don't know. I think that's the biggest unanswered question and the biggest anxiety, frankly, is how is, you know, we, we start with this um, situation where, okay, Apple's saying you have to be sandboxed. Um, every developer can go to whatever length they can to try to make that happen. Uh, and, and for some developers, uh, the Hazel-like apps, for example, that's just not going to happen. At the end of the day, there's not going to be a sandboxed version of the app. So um, I think it's fair to say that uh, on June 1st now, the new deadline, there will be some apps that can't be sandboxed. And then just like you said, Katie, they're going to have a conundrum for the developers. Do I keep developing new features for this and and update them outside the app store? Um, You're right. It's going to be a a feeling of penalization to the customers. The question is, will they blame the developers for, um, you know, you can imagine a a naive customer will say, well, why don't you just sandbox this thing? You know, if they if that's your excuse, why don't you just join the rest of the software on the store and get in line with what Apple wants you to do? Um, And so it's going to be a challenge. Uh, Somebody's going to take the flack for it. And it's it just remains to be seen how many apps will be affected how severely, and whether the sort of um, prevailing mood will be to blame Apple or to blame individual developers. And also, in fairness, this isn't really finalized. We don't know if Apple at the last minute is going to say, well, apps like Hazel will get a much bigger sandbox than apps that repair images. Right. You're right. Anything can change. You're right. Yeah. And that's actually a point I made uh I think I was on a, just a, maybe a Twitter conversation or, or no, no, I think it was on a Macworld uh, podcast um, that uh, the technology of sandboxing is completely separate in many ways from the politics and the sort of procedure of how it's being deployed. Um, because sandboxing as a technology is really quite elegant. It's this idea of of strictly controlling what software can or can't do on your Mac. And most of us would like to do that with some of our software at least. But um, the question is going to be, how does Apple choose to use this technology to impose changes on existing developers' apps? Yeah. Yeah, Time will tell. But it's clear a lot of people are nervous about this for good reason. Definitely. Mac App Store aside... How does a developer get out there and market their products to the general public? How how do you let people know, I'm here, this is what I have, come check me out, I've got a great product? What, what tools well, do you sort of, use to do that? Uh, you know, First of all, you have to have some presence on social networks, something to, to, to help jumpstart the communication when people do have something to say. It's really useful to be able to reference the... Um, the product as a member, as a peer in the social network. So for example, um, it really helps to have uh, Mars edit, have its own Twitter account because then if, you know, somebody says, Oh, I just found this great new app. It's amazing. It's called Mars edit. They're likely to put the little at sign in front of it so that it's clickable and it goes right to Mars Edit's Twitter page. Um, frankly, I should be doing more with that kind of stuff on Facebook, but I've, um, 
I've just turned out not to be a Facebook fan. You know, it was interesting hearing uh, that show with Colleen, uh, how pro Facebook she is. And I was thinking about it. Then I'm like, oh man, I got to get on Facebook. I'm missing all these people who, um, who do most of their communicating, their socializing through Facebook. Um, but so, so one thing is just having your apps, having you as a developer be part of the social scene. Um, but then most of us developers, uh, what we're aiming for is just getting some uh, amount of exposure through uh, a sort of trusted source. Um, so for years and years and years, like the big deal has been getting a Macworld review, right? Like if you get a Macworld review, it almost doesn't matter if it's only three mice if you, um, because you know so many people are are now exposed to your software who hadn't been exposed before. And then, um, you know, more, more modern, in more modern times, it's become really exciting when you get a mention on a show like this, you know, it was exciting for me to learn that you guys have been talking about Mars edit here. Uh, things like, uh, Leo Laporte shows any, sh- any, any podcast with a significant, um, listenership can really boost the, uh, customer knowledge of the product. Um, there are other things that I think are really great advice that I don't follow because I just haven't gotten around to it. But, um, for example, like, this modern era of, of browsing, you know, web browsers with massive bandwidth, it's kind of foolish not to have, um, screencast movies, for example, showing like little snippets of what your app can do. I think that kind of stuff really, uh, gives people a good idea of what your software is about without making them go through the process of downloading it and trying it out. Uh, those are the things that come to mind. I don't know if those were, um, that's the gist of what you were getting at. Well, you've also, I mean, getting even more basic than that, you've, you've obviously, you've got a website, red-sweater.com. Yep. So how do, how do you put that together? What tools do you use? I'm, I'm guessing you use a blogging tool like Marzetta. Yeah, you know, um, I do use a blogging tool for the blog portion of that site, but the rest of it's just static HTML. Um, it's another one of those things where the site is a little less, um, a little less flashy than I than I wish it was. A little less um, elegant in its communication, uh, but um, it's just straight up uh, hosted um, files. I run my 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 own store on the website. That's just, which is actually implemented with the Python scripting language, um, and the rest of it's just uh, sort of your typical HTML files, occasional PHP. I edit that stuff through BB Edit usually, and all the blog posts do come from from Mars Edit. So you're doing all that coding by hand. Um, yeah, all the all the website coding is essentially by hand. I'm not using like a um, you know a, a Dreamweaver or anything like that. Okay. So so let's take a break and talk about our next sponsor, and that is Gazelle. So uh, David, I've got my box sitting here right next to my desk, just waiting to put my lovingly care for it, iPad 1 in and waiting for my new iPad 3, iPad HD, whatever it's called, to arrive. Yeah, as we're recording this, it's the day before the big announcement. So it's kind of ironic that we don't know the name of the product, but we definitely know we want it. 
And we're already making plans. So so here's a tip for you. If you go over to gazelle.com, that's G-A-Z-E-L-L-E.com, they will give you cash for your used iPhones, your used iPads, your MacBooks, and other Apple products and other small electronic gadgets. You can find out what they're worth. So you type in the name of the product. And what I did is I actually went to Gazelle the week before the iPad announcement uh, invitation went out, locked in my price because they will let you lock for up to 30 days. Got my box sitting here ready and waiting. As soon as the announcement's made, I'm going to order my new iPad. Hopefully, we'll get it in time to ship the new one out. Uh, But go lock in your price right now on Gazelle because these things are just going to drop in value even more as the new products come out. Uh, Shipping is free. Gazelle will send you the box. The box showed up at my door. The UPS guy showed up or the uh, right as we were recording a podcast, of course, uh, handed me my box. I'm going to hand it back to him. And then I'm going to get a check in the mail. And how much easier could that be? Yeah, and let's face it, we're all geeks, and we all have technology sitting around in drawers doing us no good. You know, you sell your old phone. Uh, you know, maybe it's only worth 50 bucks, but that's $50. That's a dinner, right? You could go out to dinner and a movie for that for something that's just sitting in a drawer. So why not use Gazelle? Absolutely. And I tell you what, I'm also going to throw in this box. I've got a, an old iPod uh I guess the uh, old iPod video that's got a broken screen, I don't know what to do with it. It's not worth a whole lot of money. But Gazelle will recycle all of your gadgets that you send them as well. As long as anything in the box that you send to Gazelle is worth a dollar or more, they will cover the shipping. Um, If your gadget's worth something, they'll pay you. And if not, they will take care of recycling it responsibly and making sure that your data gets wiped. So it's a good deal. Yeah, I mean, when you see these these clips of these people in Africa with these mountains of dead Western technology – it's it's embarrassing. Right. And Gazelle gives you a way to take care of this stuff without becoming part of the problem. Right. So clean out your closets, clean out your desk drawers, see what you've got. Head over to gazelle.com, type it in, see what they'll offer you, get some cash back for your stuff, and then you can go buy all the accessories you need for your new gadgets and call it a day. It's G-A-Z-E-L-L-E dot com. And just think about this. You're getting your new iPad. Let's say you decide to get the $600 one. If you get two or three hundred bucks back from Gazelle, that just became half price. Why right. not? And make sure while you're there, you tell them the Mac Power user sent you. You can either use the link on our site or let them know when you check out. And we really appreciate their sponsorship of the show. So, Daniel, we've talked about your development, but you've also been a longtime Mac user. And I'm sure that there's some apps that you just love using. Uh, let's talk about those a little bit. Sure. So, so what are the what are the must have apps on your Mac? Well, uh, I have to add my voice to the choir about Text Expander because um, it plays a huge role in my ability to be a one person software company and um, and handle the massive amount you know relatively speaking massive amount of customer support that um, that I take care of. I do all my own customer support, so. Um, as you can imagine, all the other things I have to do in a given day, I, I, I need to find a way to optimize for time on that front. Um, yeah. I, do all, I do all my own customer support, and I'm also extremely passionate about the idea of um, you know, getting back, Katie, to the, to the marketing. I think customer support is one of the most important things you can focus on for marketing in, that, in the sense of that word-of-mouth uh, aspect. Um, so I always, I, I hold myself to an extremely high standard for mark for, um, customer support and fo- uh, I use, um, text expander, uh, in conjunction with a web-based 
bug tracking slash support system called fog bugs. And, um, you know, frankly, it's kind of amazing how quickly I can go through support email with the combination of those tools. Um, text expander, I, I, I sort of have to force myself. Like if I've answered something a couple times, I sometimes go through the lengthy writing it out by hand. And then I go, you know what? This is ridiculous. I can, I can copy this, put it in a text expander and expand it this time. And if I, if I never do it again, that's okay. Uh, but chances are I'm going to do it a third, fourth, fifth, sixth time. Right. So, um, definitely a big fan of text expander. Um, I mentioned earlier, I love using fast scripts for my own stuff. Uh, but, um, uh, there's uh, a whole bunch of other software that's kind of not productivity uh, per se, but um, uh, I'm a uh, net, big Net Newswire fan for keeping in touch with what my friends and colleagues and you know people I'm a fan of are writing on their blogs. Uh, I still use RSS. You know, people keep claiming that RSS is dead, but uh, I still find it really useful for for um, monitoring the uh, the blogs I like to to read. Yeah, me too. I I haven't given up on RSS yet. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm I'm happy to let the technology go as long as uh, something fills the same need. You know, I think it's it's again, it's not about the technology. Uh, people say RSS is dead because of things like Twitter. Well, last time I checked, I can't actually, you know, easily subscribe to a blog I like through Twitter. So, sort of just depends what you're trying to achieve. Um, Twitter is sort of the um, the fire hose effect, you know, where you you decide that the way you want to consume content is by um, having a bunch of it stream by you, and and uh, you know, unless you subs- unless you follow like a very small number of people, then you probably miss a bunch of tweets, right? You miss you miss some of the things that people say, and uh, I like that style of consuming media and content but i also like you know knowing for certain that i'll never miss a daring fireball post right and that the way i do that is by using an rss tool uh net newswire to subscribe to it and i have to say that with the ipad i think i use things like rss and instapaper even more than i ever did before yeah it's a really great tool for that kind of stuff and it's it's, yeah. it's so casual, and you can just you can relax and lean back on the couch and do that kind of processing stuff, right? Yeah, so nice. Well, what are your other favorite apps? Um, well, I'm recording this right now on a great app called Audio Hijack Pro, which um, is a great app in its own right, uh, and um, but they also have a, a really cool simplified version for people who don't need the the full. Uh, crazy toolbox it just came out with something new called piezo um uh, i do yeah, my katie and, um, I are, katie and i are big fans of piezo in fact we sometimes when we interview people we'll just have them record themselves in that app oh yeah it's probably perfect for that you know i, I haven't used it much except to just open it up and see oh this is really beautifully designed and it looks like it just does the job uh yeah but it's um I've just been stuck in my audio hijack ways because it's basically uh, piezo is basically like the, the the heart of audio hijack and a really nice interface. Uh, but um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm uh, you know I guess yeah. Another thing I'll mention that I use, um, which is related, Katie, to the whole marketing thing, is um, 
Do you guys familiar with Mint? It's not the financial software. Oh, yeah. oh then I guess no. The stat tracking. Oh. Yeah, yeah, it's like Google Analytics, um, but it's um, it's Google Analytics without having to give every give one more piece of your life to uh, to Google. Uh, it's like and, Google Analytics without being creepy. <laughs> exactly, it's self-hosted uh, analytics software that's um, you you pay like a one-time license, thirty bucks or something, uh, just the same way you'd buy a lot of desktop software, and it lets you run your own. Um, hosted service for basically just keeping track of where people are linking to you from. So actually, um, speaking of RSS, I use mint to sort of be able to have a dashboard to check out, you know, if, if, if somebody has been linking me a lot, you know, if I get a bunch of new hits, I can see where they're coming from. But, um, I almost honestly never open up the mint interface because it has this great feature where you can subscribe by RSS to the um, most recent unique linkers to you. So I have this RSS feed that's just kind of like where I keep a monitor on um, anybody who's... It's kind of like being able to look at your Twitter mentions, right? But looking at your link mentions from around the web. So I'm uh, I'm also pretty... I'm, I'm less proactive than I used to be. And I, I when I started doing red sweater i was like crazy proactive about trying to be socially engaged with everybody who mentioned my products so i would go out and i would say you know somebody would mention in a blog post just trying out mars edit i would go and write a comment and say thank you for trying out mars edit let me know if i can help with anything and that was the kind of stuff that just gets people really fired up and excited about about your company because they just realize oh my gosh this this person is actually in touch with me about his software. Um, so I try to do that kind of stuff, but it's gotten a little bit out of hand. I can't really do, um, can't really follow up on every mention, but it's nice to know that they're out there and mint makes that a lot easier to do. The, um, now you, you use uh, Apple mail, correct? I do. Yeah. Okay. So me too. Uh, I know a lot of people like Gmail, but, um, so you can manage the, the requirements that you have for all this customer support through Apple mail. Is that where you do it? Uh, actually, no, that's where the fog bugs comes in. So, um, fog bugs is brilliant because, um, it hooks up with an email address. And, um, so every time anybody emails support at red sweater.com, it becomes a ticket in fog bugs. So it, it, um, it's brilliant for stuff, uh, like customer support, in comparison to a regular sort of inbox, because suddenly then you get these these tools like um, when I'm editing, when I'm responding to a customer in Fogbugs, there's a little side panel that says, um, you know, I'm looking at this this bug report maybe, and it says, you know, whenever I run the program, it crashes, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, well, what's the program? This is a classic problem with you know having more than one product. People email you. Yeah. So normally I'd have to say, dear so-and-so, I'm doing everything I can to hide my annoyance at you for not even bothering to mention the product name, but in the most friendly way I can, I'm going to ask you for the product. And with something like Fogbugs, it has the entire history of all of my customer support in it. So typically when I'm using Fogbugs, I'll see an email like that. And then in this little sidebar, it says, this customer also sent... And then list a bunch of um, email uh, links. 
So I'll go down the list and say, okay, let's see what these, these, let's see what this customer said last time. And then they'll say in the, in the previous email, maybe it's from two years ago, but they'll say, I just installed Mars edit for the first time. And I go, oh, okay. I know, I know now this is a Mars edit customer. So, uh, it just kind of puts everything into a really, uh, well organized system where you can, um, prioritize the bugs. You can, uh, you know, you can, um, and, and again, it also supports RSS. So I can subscribe with RSS to um, a list of any new bugs that have come in, things like that. So I don't use um, uh, mail.app for anything more complicated than all of my normal inbox mail, which is still pretty substantial. But um, but Fogbug's definitely for, for the stuff that I really need to be accountable to. Are so you about- using any mail plugins? Um, you know, I don't use any mail plugins. Um, it's, oh, I, I lie. <laughs> it's been there for so long that I just assume that stan- uh, spam sieve is part of mail. But um, I should be. I, I think I think it kind of is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't even notice. Um, and and you notice, I don't think I even said. Oh, I did. I did list it. Uh, yeah, I, I'd written some notes down for this show, and I. It's it's common for me to overlook the fact that I run Spamseve, even though, you know how when, when you're running it, it has its own little dock icon. I don't yeah. see that dock icon anymore. It's like it doesn't even exist. It's 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 blurred out to me. So, uh, see, I've actually hidden that dock icon. There's a there's a little app called Dockless. It's it's free. You can download it that you can use to to hide icons because i i'm a very minimalist dock person i hide my dock and the only icons in my dock are the the applications that are actually running okay so, so i i use dockless to hide the icons Maybe of, I of things that, that are always that. running yeah yeah I, I think i've effectively solved it by just reprogramming my brain to never recognize it but it it, it sometimes i do get annoyed by that kind of stuff like i i run um I run ScanSnap for the scanner, you know, too. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm like in that cult as well. And uh, it's another one. That's, I've, I've just got the dock icon running all the time. So maybe I should look into this dockless thing. Yeah. Yeah. ScanSnap is always in the bar because you've got it running, right? Yeah. Right. Because yeah, you, you have can... to have it running so that you can push the button on the scanner to have it scan without using your computer. Yeah. The blue button doesn't work if you don't have the app. Yeah. Yep. So this concessions we make. So what what are your other favorite uh, you know niche apps or the things you get in your menu bar? Are there, are there any others that you just can't help but talk about? Um, well, I can you know I have tons of stuff. I could probably keep talking all day. But one thing I'm just looking up at my menu bar, and one thing that's been up there forever, you know, I, I already mentioned I got Text Expander, but right next to it is uh, Sketch. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, Sketch is great. So Sketch is just you know, it's one of those apps that it hasn't really changed that much in like three or four years, I think. But when it came out, it was like, duh, this is what everybody wants to take a screenshot and upload it somewhere and copy a link to it. And that's like, whenever I need to share something quickly with somebody, I'm just sketching it. You know, I'm just like, oh, I, I want to show my friend in IRC this new user interface I'm working on for Mars Edit. I just take a quick screenshot click the button and it's up there. So yeah, and you can um, draw pretty... an arrow on it. You can oh, draw right. an arrow. Yeah, you can all that stuff it. is great. Yeah. I've report I've reported bugs to Apple that are essentially just like a screenshot with, you know, mildly irate text and arrows on it from Sketch. So 
it's a really good uh, tool for communicating visually. And, and, you know, Sketch just got purchased by Evernote. And they have, it used to be, I think, $10. I paid for it when it went in the Mac App Store. For the longest time, it was like the forever beta app. You know, you used to get it on the internet, and it was always in beta. They never had really released it. And it was the Australian developers. I forget their name. Uh, but either way, so it was beta forever. They finally put it in the Mac App Store. I bought it immediately. I felt like I needed to actually buy it like five times because I'd used it so much. But uh, then Evernote just purchased it, and now it's free. Now so it's free again. <laughs> yeah, so if you're listening to this show, uh, you, sh- you have no excuse not to go get it. And I believe they have a an iPad sketch out now as well. Uh, in fact, I know they do, but I'm oh, not sure if cool. that one costs or not. Yeah, It's a great app, though, especially yeah, for just sharing free. quick things. Is it? Great, yeah. yeah. I'll put links for both the uh, the Mac App Store and the iPad app in the show notes. Yeah, thanks that, for mentioning that. Now, how does Evernote like – oh, sorry, go ahead. In like three years, I don't think we've ever covered that app on the show, and it's a great app. Oh, yeah, it's so good. Well, what I was wondering is, uh, I'm, you know, I'm not, in the, I, I, I'm not in the Evernote cult yet. So I think I'm, I, I, I sort of have like the, um, the paranoia about putting my stuff, you know, in other people's servers. But um, it, obviously I've heard – you know, I heard you guys talking about it actually in, in uh, the other show. Uh, and it seems like you're pretty pro. But what, what, is some, what do they get from is, – is the idea of them owning Skitch just to encourage more people to put screenshots in their Evernote and to be more reliant on Evernote then? Yeah, we actually, so. yeah we actually yeah. did a whole show on Evernote with Brett Kelly. Uh, who wrote the book on Evernote, literally. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, so you might want to go back and check that out. But Evernote's business model is they do have a, a, pay, a premium, a pay-for-service, which, which I subscribe to, that if you put enough stuff in Evernote, you'll eventually reach a ceiling. And they do, you have some additional features like offline access on iOS devices and uh, OCRing of PDFs and, and things like that. Oh, okay, so there's, it's kind of like Dropbox where uh, you can use it for... Can you use Evernote for free at the beginning? Is that, is that right? The, yeah. they, have a, they have a free model that's yeah fine for most people's use. Okay, and then once you really get it, the idea is that you get so hooked into their system that you upgrade to the to the pay right. model. Okay, it's the yeah, classic well, great. battle between it's the classic battle between convenience and security. You know, it's yeah. really convenient, but your stuff is out there somewhere. Yeah, I haven't gotten into Dropbox for the same reason. I think it's something I could get into, but I just need to really evaluate it first. And you know, at some point, I've just come to the conclusion that my stuff is out there anyway. <laughs> the stuff is out there. The, the, the X-Files, the sequel. It's out there, yeah. Yes. Well, Daniel, um, it's been great having you on the show. We've been going now about an hour and a half, so we probably should stop. But the... Uh, I'm just really happy you came on, and uh, thank you so much for sharing with us some advice about getting started and, and programming in addition to the tools that you use. Um, I know that, you know, talking to other developer friends, you say, well, how do you get work done? And they say, well, it's really easy, Xcode. And I say, well, what else do you do? And they say, well, that's it. I'm in Xcode all day. But obviously, listening to you, there's actually quite a bit of pieces to this puzzle in order to make everything work. And... You know, I'm sure it took you years to put this together, and I really appreciate you sharing it with our listeners. Oh, it's been my great pleasure. It's really, really fun to be on the show, and so shortly after, 
you know, having just been pleased to to hear the show for the first time and really fun to be here on the show itself. So thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so so if you want to check out Daniel's apps, you want to go to Red Sweater Software, and that's got a hyphen between red and sweater. And I guess that's a story someday we'll have to ask you how it got that name. <laughs> but the um, but all the apps are there. And then you're also in the Mac App Store. Is Are all of your apps in the Mac App Store at this point? Um, you know, I think... Uh only I think all of them except for Clarion uh, is in there. Okay. Um, well, and if you're, yeah, if you're doing any blogging, you definitely want to get the blogging engine because there's nothing better, really, frankly. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, the one, one interesting thing about Red Sweater, Red Red Hyphen Sweater, is that the most interesting thing about its name is that even though I got the domain. And founded the company technically in 1999. I still had to get the hyphen in there. <laughs> so people assume, beat you that early. <laughs> yeah, people usually assume that I just got like the hyphen in there because I, you know, founded the company in the last few years. But it's I've had this domain for a long time, and it's just unfortunately this this one this this woman who's an artist who who runs her art site from redsweater.com and it has nothing there's nothing in her name or the name of her art or anything that has to do with red sweater i think it's just a historical quirk you know but yeah. uh that, that's the way it she is doesn't even sell red sweaters right no and it's gotten worse now she has like another domain name that she uses primarily and red sweater just like like redirects through to it but uh, I've asked. I've asked periodically if I can get that name from her, and it's just not interested. So maybe I'm not offering enough. Yeah. Well, eventually, I'm sure you'll get it. And the um and so all these great apps, you know, Mars Edit. If you're a blogger on the Mac, there really is anything better. I, I use it with uh, Squarespace, but you can also use it with WordPress. I mean, it works with I think pretty much any blogging engine anybody's using at this point, isn't it? It's it works with a heck of a lot of stuff. Um, it yeah. works with um, almost every well known blog system. The notable exception being Posterous or Posterous. Um, yeah. And uh, there's we're sort we sort of been at an AP, we've been at an impasse, I guess, for a few years about which one of us is going to concede to the other one's um, <laughs> <laughs> willingness to adapt their uh, their 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 APIs, etc. Um, yeah. but it works with so much stuff and it's partly because way back in the early days of blogging, they, uh, they made these terribly flawed, but fortunately, um, very widespread, uh, u- widely used APIs, which, yeah. um, which means that, you know, there's systems out there I don't even know about that work with Mars at it because they implement these standard APIs. So it's kind of cool. Well, you know, Colleen. Colleen Wainwright uses your software. I use it. I, I think there's a lot of bloggers. That Gruber uses use. it. Does he? Yep. Yeah. No, he's great. He's a great promoter of uh, of Mars. I, I get a lot of, uh, you know, speaking of the marketing again, Katie, I get a lot of uh, incidental emails that say just like, P.S., I bought your software after I read about it on Daring Fireball. So very, that's that's another big thing people shoot for and hope for, like the, the Macworld interview and the or I'm sorry, the Macworld review and the uh, Daring and Fireball mentioned. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm I'm a little embarrassed. I I was doing the you know write my blog post in a text editor and copy and paste it up to WordPress. And Colleen spoke so highly of it. I was like, I got to go check this out. I downloaded the demo and. Oh my gosh, blogging can be easy. That was one of the reasons why I didn't do it very much. That was actually one of my oh. resolutions for 2012 was to start blogging more. And when blogging is easy, you do it more often. So thank you. Oh, I'm very happy that you've tried it and it's working out. Yeah. So where else can people find you? Are you on, you're on Twitter? You're on, um, well, I guess you're not on Facebook, you said. I am on Facebook. You can find me there, but just don't expect me to respond. I'm like a I'm like a deadbeat Facebook guy. That's right. Uh, David doesn't do Facebook either. Yeah. So um, I'm on Twitter, uh, Daniel Punk Ass, which is uh, my semi crude uh, and long Twitter ID. Um, you know, speaking of the music, I have this funny little project that's called um, Twit Pop. And I haven't really done much with it in a while, but occasionally it's like, it's been like my only musical outlet in, um, in years really was occasionally seeing a Twitter, uh, tweet from somebody that I thought like read poetically or something. And so I have this project where I, I turn tweets into songs and, uh, that's at, um, punk it up like, uh, P U N K I T U P dot com slash twit pop. Very cool. So right, what well, does that do? I, I kind of know now. Well, what it is, the premise is um, me reading a tweet, thinking it would make a cool little song, and then spending a usually very short amount of time hacking something together with a guitar or a piano and, and singing. Oh, okay. It's, it's not an app. It's just... You no, no. No, it's that. actually a project of mine where it's, it, it encourages me to do silly little songs... Uh, about Twitter itself. So I'm yeah. looking at it right now. This is cool. Okay, I'm putting this in the link. I like it. <laughs> cool. All I need right. to do that. I need to punk something up. Oh boy. Yeah, punk it so up. Now, now you started it. Uh oh. We, we broke David. You broke Uh-oh, him. look out. We're never uh, gonna get another podcast recorded again. No, what I'll do is I'll I'll put it to like Thelonious Monk or like just a uh, groovy hip bass, you know. That would work too, yeah. right? You're gonna you're gonna uh, Hips- cool it up, hipster yeah. it up, hipster, hipster it up. up. Yeah, there we go. All right, well, Daniel, thanks for coming out. Um, everybody, go to Red Sweater Software and check out Daniel's amazing apps. Follow him on Twitter, and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. This sounds great, and it's been really fun to be here. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Well, that's going to wrap us up for this episode of Mac Power Users. We do want to thank Daniel Jalcut for coming on and talking to us about being a Mac OS developer. I've learned a lot about this episode. I admit this is a topic that I really knew nothing about. Yeah. Daniel's a super guy, and it was very nice of him to come on and, and share all that information with our audience. Yeah. And I, I can't wait for him to uh, get some iOS versions out, like Mars Edit. Waiting. Yep. That'd be killer. <laughs> it would be. Uh, so you can find links to everything that we talked about in this episode over at our website. That's at www.macpowerusers.com or on the newly redesigned five by five website. And that's at www.5x5.tv slash MPU and congrats to Dan and everyone over at five by five for doing such a good job on that redesign. I think mainly it was just Dan. (laughs) Yeah, I think it was just Dan. (laughs) I don't know how he does it all. I mean, He's this this great web guy, and he's running all these shows at the same time. I'm impressed. 
anyway, if you want to get a hold of us, send us an email to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. That'll come to both Katie and I. Yep, you can find us on Twitter. The show is at MacPowerUsers. I'm at Katie Floyd, and you are at Mac Sparky. Yes, I am. And uh, thanks to our sponsors for sponsoring the show today. That would be Daisy Disk, the Omni Group, and One Password. They are all fantastic Mac products, and we really appreciate their support. And uh, next week, we are going to talk about dumping Google. Yeah, it's it's going to be a bookend for the last show we did about Google, where we talked about how great everything is with Google and how to use their services. It seems like things are changing a little bit, and there's a lot of people questioning whether or not they want to tie their ships to the Google wave or whatever you want to call it. I guess wave is the wrong word since that product is killed now. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about you know what that means to dump Google. I mean, do Everything from just, you know, backing off and, and adjusting your security preferences to literally dumping Google and not using them for anything and the alternative products that are available. So it's going to be a great show, and I'm looking forward to doing it next week. All right. And in the meantime, if you have any suggestions or tips about how you have dumped Google in your own life, feel free to send them to us at feedback at MacPowerUsers.com, and we'll talk to you then. <laughs>